Aquinas says beauty is goodness made perceptible to the senses, which to me is, I mean, that is just, just end the conversation there. That, that's really all I need to know. The experience of beauty is really an experience of grace. It's an experience of, it's, it's decentering by its nature. So for, for someone just to say, oh my goodness, that's so beautiful, whatever it is, or art, a sunset, child, in, in the moment, the, the, the visceral experience of beauty is one of uh, non-self-centeredness. Because I'm attending to something outside of me and I'm acknowledging that it has value outside. It's like, wow, even just to say wow is, is to be pulled out of yourself. Hey everyone, Paul here. Today I am so overjoyed to be in conversation with the singer-songwriter, one of my favorite singer-songwriters alive today. Yes, that is not hyperbole. He's certainly one of my favorites on the planet right now. That is John Guerra. John Guerra is a singer-songwriter in Austin, Texas. His latest record is entitled Keeper of Days. This thing is an absolute gem. I mean, this record messed me up in the best possible ways. So check it out. If you haven't listened to it yet, I'll provide a link in the description. Along with that, John and his wife also compose music for Terrence Malick. Are you kidding me? One of the great filmmakers of our era. I can't wait to talk to John Guerra today. Today's episode and all of our episodes are made possible by the generous supporters of listeners just like you. Make sure to stay tuned at the end of today's conversation to find out how you can get involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community. Not only is that the place where you can support this podcast, but it's also a place to connect with other listeners in our discussion forums for each podcast. It's also a place where you could get plugged in with monthly Patreon Zoom calls with me and other listeners from across the country. There's also opportunities if you want to set up one-on-one -on -one times for conversation where you can talk through theology, philosophy, the questions you're going through and processing. Uh, there's a whole bunch of perks. So if you want to find out more about that, stay tuned at the end of today's episode to find out more. Well, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with John Guerra. Well, John, it's so great to be joined uh, by you today. I, I'll talk about this later in our conversation, but um, it was my wife that first introduced me to your music, which she confesses is typically a role reversal. Like usually I'm the one introducing her to new stuff. I'm the one that, you know, is a musician and, you know, always finding the, the hidden gems. But this time it was her introducing it to me. And I've been blown away uh, on, on so many levels. Um, the composition side to your music, the sheer beauty of it, the, the poetry uh, in your lyrics, the, the way it haunts me. You know, we were just talking about, I, I come from a charismatic background, and um, music is oftentimes like the main course more so than the preaching in a charismatic background. And that's, that's still a deep part of who I am. And so I still experience a greater awareness of God, oftentimes in music, than I do in other spiritual disciplines. So your music's been deeply transformative, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you today, John. That's very sweet, Paul. Thanks for having me, man. Well, I'd love to, because I actually know very little about you personally, um, other than your music. And I'm really curious as to, you know, what, what your upbringing was like, what your journey of faith has been like, some of the things that have shaped you, informed you, 
not just spiritually, but also vocationally to do what you do as a songwriter, composer, musician? Yeah. Um, so I grew up, uh, born in California, grew up in Houston until I was 12. Then my family moved from Houston to the suburbs of Chicago called Wheaton. My dad has been a pastor my whole life. Um, I am an only child of two immigrants. One is uh, from Cuba, one is from Argentina. Uh, like I said, my parents have been in ministry my whole life. Um, I was a Baptist pastor until I was 12, and then I uh, took a job as a um, uh, pastor of a Hispanic congregation at a church called Wheaton Bible Church, right next to Wheaton College, and um, grew up uh, just like a church kid, I guess, um, going to youth group. Um, you know, I went to Christian schools all grown up. Um, it wasn't until that move from probably the uh, summer before, uh, summer right after we moved from Houston to, to Wheaton. Um, like I said, I'm an only child and uh, we moved at the beginning of the summer, so I didn't have any friends. You know, I knew Newtown. And um, I think I was probably feeling, you know, I, as a kid, I wasn't particularly mindful of my emotions, you know, but I think I was acting out maybe a little bit more because um, my mom sent me on a trip, you know, with the church to like make friends. Um, and it was, it was one of those like, hey, we're at this new church. Do you want to go on a trip with them? It's like, absolutely not. <laughs> and then like five days later, I was on that trip. <laughs> so, because I, um, but I, I'm so glad that I went because uh, it was like 15 kids. We went it was like a, uh, a work trip, um, a missions trip where we go just kind of help out cleaning this sister church, uh, that was less well-resourced, but it was, you know, it was like any other youth group trip. You go and, um, in the evenings there was music and during the day we do BBS and whatever, but it was in the evenings that, um, uh, I, I had, you know, my first, what I would, um, I wouldn't be shy to call like my first experience of God. Hmm. Um, I'd always believe like it, it, God was always a given. Um, the story of Jesus was just something that, I mean, it was as, it was as, yeah, it was as much of a given as, um, as the clouds in the sky. I mean, it was very much just because as a kid, you don't really question the things your parents give you. Yeah. But it was on that trip that I, uh, youth pastor got up with this, Taylor guitar and he wasn't anything particularly special. We were just sitting in a circle, no amplification, just sitting in a circle singing these kind of vineyardy type praise tunes. Um, and just one of those nights, you know, the room was not really the room anymore. There was something more than some of its parts. And um, I felt, uh, I just felt something very special. And it, it, uh, I thought it was the music. You know, I thought it was, yeah, yeah. uh, the youth pastor was up there, you know, reading along to these, um, letters above the lyrics. Like, what are you reading? Like, what, what is happening? And I, and so I, I kind of, uh, I still, honestly, I still get chills even thinking about, thinking about that trip. Um, mm -hmm. I, uh, with, with the kids just, you know, their hands in the air, eyes closed so tight. Um, 
I, I grew later on to be very cynical about those experiences. Um, but beyond the cynicism, I've now grown to cherish those as, as really quiet, hidden moments of, of grace in my life that, to be honest, I, um, I, I'm, still, I'm still chasing to yeah. this day. I, it really put me on a path because, like I said, I thought it was the music. So I went home after that trip. Started, uh, my mom had a guitar that she brought. She played guitar growing up or something, but I had never seen her play. Um, but she had one, and I came home, and I'm like, hey, you know, I want a guitar. I want to learn. She's like, oh, I have one. So we went to Guitar Center. I got a chord book, and I got some of those chord sheets from church from my youth pastor. And I just started learning chords and teaching myself. And um, a couple of years later, I was playing at church, um, like in high school. So I started kind of playing in the worship band and then leading worship um, and writing songs as soon as I learned my first couple chords. So it was very natural to me to just start, um, yeah, just writing my own songs and, and really writing my own um, uh you know, I guess what I call devotional songs now, like it's really funny how some of that language that I have for it now and that I maybe have more eloquent language for back then was really just, uh, it was kind of the default mode for me. Um, uh, yeah, John towards God looked, looked a certain way, even when I was 12 or 13. I mean, it was, it was definitely the songs were an atrocity of art. I mean, it was, it was definitely like so bad, but it was, <laughs> there was, it was just me singing really passionately and sincerely to God. And, um, you know, my note, my notebook, I just would cross out the lyrics and try to find something different or try to find a different combination of words. And, um, I wasn't a particularly smart kid or, um, well-read or, you know, I always went to, private school. So I think the quality of my education and my, my parents are both very, my, my dad's a pastor, but he also did some adjunct teaching and theology departments at um, schools in Chicago, Moody and Wheaton. Um, so I, I grew up around books, yeah, but yeah. Um, so, so language is always important too. Additionally, because my parents, English is their second language and they struggled a lot coming into the mm. country, not speaking English. So uh, English, which is very important in our house. Um, and being able to communicate yourself this was, was very important. So I was always like trying to come up with a way that seemed fresh to me. But again, it wasn't, there, was, there was nothing special about those early moments. Um, but I uh, then in high school, you know, as I kind of started trying to differentiate myself and my faith from my parents, uh, kind of wrapped up in my teenage rebellion was also discovery of a different kind of music outside of church music. It was a discovery of, um, you know, Radiohead, yeah. discovery of Muse, of uh, really just these amazing, amazing songwriters and bands, Rufus Wainwright, that had nothing to do with, with church. Um, and along with that, I, I had a choir teacher who took an interest in me um, my sophomore year and kind of, I, I sang at some school at a talent show or something, and he was like, you need to join my choir. And I had no idea about classical music or about choirs, but um, I was open to it. And so I joined choir and he, he would uh, ask me what I was listening to and I'd pass him like, okay, computer. And then he would pass me, he'd go home and listen to it. And he would come back and he'd say, well, if you like this, you should listen to Debussy's, you know, fourth symphony. And he would pass me it, you know, class. 
And it was so uh, dignifying. Yeah. And to my friends, because we were just, you know, we were just band rock kids, you know, and we just mm-hmm. liked playing it loud. And, uh, but he, anyway, so he, he kind of awakened in me this love for um, a wider palette of music. And that's kind of when I um, learned how to play piano. I took a study hall my junior and senior year and would get some of those CDs that he would pass me put on my disc man and just try to learn what I was hearing. I always had a, I always had a good ear. So I um, kind of learned piano by listening to Chopin and Liszt and uh, rock about an and trying to plunk out the chords. I, you know, I, I'd bring it to him and be like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. He's like, oh, you're doing this by ear, not, not. I was doing it by music. ear, yeah. Not wow. people, no. And then my senior year, my parents heard that I was plunked around on the piano um, in kind of more sophisticated ways than that they, like, oh, this is, sounds pretty good. You want to take lessons? And I did lessons for a month, but I just didn't have the discipline to stick with it. I, um, you know, music, I had to go all the way back to the rudimentary, the rudiments of, of sheet music. So I, um, I couldn't stick with it. I, I learned, I took music theory. So I, I got it in my head um, senior year of high school and then freshman year of college. I took a music theory, advanced music theory course. Um, but beyond that was really just uh, my own explorations of composers and um and yeah just just kind of my love and my curiosity sort of led the way uh and so yeah after high school I I went to bible school I was in a band and then we broke up and I went to bible school because I um by that point I really um had a love for reading and love for studying and I thought maybe I would um I don't know maybe I would be in some kind of ministry um, whether that was church ministry or theology, some kind of academic thing. And, um, but by senior year, I, you know, I've been writing a lot in college. I, I felt pretty strongly that I was meant to contribute. What I was meant to contribute to the world was probably going to be through, through art, through music. Um, and really since graduation, I've, I've done some version of that both in ministry and, you know, as a worship leader at different churches, uh, but also trying to, you know, trying to, um, yeah, try, trying to use my, my art and my, my work to, uh, to honor God, I guess, just to, you know, it's, it's my way of engaging with, um, yeah, with my, my questions and, um, seems like it's your way of praying. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I often feel like when I'm listening that I'm I'm almost getting like your journal entries mm-hmm. in some beautiful, wrapped up in some beautiful sonic palette mm-hmm. <laughs> as well. That I, yeah. And that's, that seems like a sort of response you're trying, maybe intentionally or just because it's what comes out of you naturally it's the sort of response that you invite listeners to participate in to too even Mm -hmm. in naming it devotional music you've said a few things i find really interesting though john i'd I'd like to pick at a little bit because you said something as you were talking about your backstory and how music played such an important role as like a a spiritual gateway into experiencing god having an awareness of god's presence and nearness you said something right after that that for a while you became cynical 
about that. And and maybe now you've kind of returned back or you're looking to return back. I'm really curious what what for you produced that cynicism, because I see it a lot too, and I've wrestled with it as well as someone that, that's been deeply shaped. I, I think of, as you were sharing that experience, John, I, I went back in my own mind to these really formative experiences that I, I had, um, what I still consider experiencing God in music, but yeah. I can also see like the sort of bottom-up picture of how God works in our biology, and I'm understanding more about neuroscience and psychology and I'm understanding like, oh man, that's a great dopamine hit. And I'm these my serotonin levels are improving because of the song. And maybe that's what I'm feeling. And there's a way that sometimes like that bottom-up description of what's happening in us can produce in people like some cynicism. I think I've come full circle into seeing in the incarnational God, the God who's incarnate in Jesus Christ, that there is no divorcing of the spiritual and the material. So I've come full circle, but I'm wondering for you, what was it that maybe produced cynicism in you? Because I know a lot of people experience that, especially people our age, where there was this like thing called the worship movement, you know, (laughs) I mean, 40 years ago at a church like my church, which is a very old church, they didn't have a position called like a worship pastor. Um, In a lot of places, that's, that's a relatively new phenomenon. And in our formative years, it played a really big deal, uh, not yeah. just in our lives, but in a lot of people's lives. And then we enter into our adult years and maybe start to reassess. So for you, what it, it, can you pinpoint some of the things that maybe produced cynicism in you? Pain. I mean, I, I, think, I think ultimately uh, cynicism is about pain. And it's about um, teenagers are already you know, to speak of the biology of the team is, is, I mean, it's just the chemistry is exploding. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of the most turbulent times, whether you grow up in a quirky religious, you know, quirky religious environment or, or whether you're just growing up in the coolest, hippest, most progressive Brooklyn, New York, whatever. It's like being a teenager is hard. Um, so there's that. Um, uh, there's the natural um, differentiation that teenagers need to go through. You know, my, my wife is a, oh, I was a trauma therapist by training, and she studied um, a lot of uh, really just um, kind of what happens developmentally with, with yep. kids and teenagers up through their 20s. And That's right. really healthy for, for kids to differentiate. That, in fact, when that doesn't happen, it actually produces all sorts of. Uh, chaos later on that actually probably should happen when you're 17 rather than 27. Um, maybe you should just get caught with, you know, smoking weed or whatever when you're seven rather than like 27, you blow up your life because you don't know who you are. And, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and so for me, it was that, you know, there's that background. I'm, I'm already very, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more of a, a sensitive dude. Like, uh, I, I feel that sometimes there's a few extra frames per second in terms of just kind of feeling what's happening around. And I, yeah. I don't, it just is what it is, just kind of how I'm wired. Um, uh, just a blessing and a curse at times, right? Like it really is, yeah. If, it really is. if you can channel that into something that helps people give voice yeah. to their experiences, it's the best part of the gift. I, I, I remember years ago, 
talking to, I don't know if you're familiar with who Kevin Prosh is. Mm-hmm. Kevin Prosh was like, especially in charismatic circles, he was one of like the godfathers, pioneers of modern worship music. He was a vineyard guy for a while, then had kind of a pretty significant moral fall and then came back and, you know, um, you know, wrote such songs as like, um, he brought me to his banqueting table. You know, that was him. Oh, if you ever knew that song or there's a harp in my heart and only you can play it. Like, oh, anyways, man. I remember he, uh, I knew him years ago and, uh, he was telling me about his own struggles with even just like depression. And the thing, and this has always struck, uh, stuck with me. He said, the thing I've always wrestled with is that the the world I imagine inside of me is always seems more beautiful than the world that I experience out there. And it seemed like he was confessing to this like double-edged sword that that can be channeled into immense creativity and inviting people into seeing a possibly different world, but it can also produce a lot of um, overloading of your emotional senses. Is that the case for you? I, yeah, I think a little bit of that. Yeah, I, I, or, or maybe a lot of that. Um, uh, and you sometimes don't want to do that. You know, you're a teenager and you're like, so I think it was, it was part of that. Um, it, it's hard now when, when I look back at the times that I was cynical, I, I just have a different, you know, some people see cynicism as kind of like a badge of honor and I really don't see it that way. Um, it, it, I see it as, as kind of like as something that really kind of corrodes your own insides. You, you kind of think you're, yeah. you think you're um, insightful or you think you're, but ultimately those times in my, you know, late teens, early twenties that I, I felt like I was just kind of torching everything at all times and that there was nothing that I couldn't rip to shreds. I, it's almost like a, I, I, I just think it's a very dark time for me. And the friendships that I built around those kind, kinds of postures towards simplicity or simple faith or quirky church, I, th- those friendships are just non-existent anymore. I mean, it's just, I don't see those people. I, um, and now I, I want nothing more than to be a, a simple Christian with, you know, a simple trust for God, whose um, heart is just growing bigger every day for the woundedness of the world towards people that are different than me, towards my, you know, hopefully my enemies, though that, that's such a tall order, you know, yeah. hopefully at least people, I, I, I'm at least just trying to get to the point where I can love people that I, I am annoyed by, <laughs> very least, you know, that are, you know. Yeah, that's um, a good place to start. I mean, just. Being able to love my wife and her to love me back is a pretty yeah. good start before we get to uh, Bin Laden and Hitler. And, you know. <laughs> Although sometimes those characters are easier because they're yeah. abstract and they have nothing yes. to do with me. You know, it's, right. like, it's the people that are just like two feet away. They're, mm. you know, it's the most trouble. So then uh, you circle back around out of your cynicism or you're working, maybe you're still working through some of that. We all are. And now you've come back at some point to being open again to experiencing transcendence, wonder, awe, an experience of God in music. What was it that brought you back? Was it just like you got tired of the cynicism? You got tired of 
how destructive it feels because it does man like being in that that cycle of cynicism where you're yeah. always deconstructing things it's like it weighs on your soul i i don't know yeah. after a while there's only so much um so much tearing down that you can do before yeah. you're like man i don't know i probably should start to build something yeah yeah no i honestly felt like it was a it was a mercy that um you know i sort of begin to run from that impulse in myself. Um, ultimately, it was really just Christ's tender care for me when I was um, kind of hurting. There was some kind of personal stuff going on in my early 20s that I just really, really kind of kind of broke me. And there's a Beekner quote, Frederick Beekner, that I've always related to. Um, something like, I can't prove a thing about God, but there's something about the way he carries his head, the way he, uh, his eyes and his voice, there's something about the way, um, you know, he carries his cross, there's something about the way he carries me. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really as simple as that. It was, uh, it was finding, it was really finding God's kindness to me that I just kind of, yeah, I don't know. Then you, you look back after a couple of years and you're like, oh, I thank you. God, you know, for, for caring for me. Um, it was that, it was also, you know, my, my parents have given themselves to very simple ministry their whole life. It's never been anything spectacular, um, like a spectacle. There's never been any spectacle to it. And, um, just the faith of simple Christians has been quite inspiring to me. Um, and, and yeah, I don't know, but, but really, I, it's really been, it's really been a mercy. I think some people maybe need some, some years in that cynical vortex yeah, before yeah. they, they're maybe let out of the desert. Hmm. Um, something about the aridity of cynicism sometimes can produce some, some real, uh, some, some real treasure. And, um, I, I'm glad that I didn't, you know, I, Granted, I still, to say I'm not cynical isn't to say that I'm not pissed about certain things. You know, it's to say <laughs> that my eyes aren't open about, right. um, I mean, you've heard my songs. It's mm -hmm. I definitely, I definitely there's, have There's some. healthy critique there. There's, I think I'm, yeah. You can't lose, like, the, the, the thing, the gift of the prophets, think of the Old Testament prophets, is the ability to see what's not functional, what's disordered in the world, and to name that. But there's a difference between that and the cynical disposition which yeah. is to always is to always look for the dysfunction as opposed to to me like a truly prophetic voice and i i feel this in your music john is to be able to see it but to offer hope and to be able yeah. to offer a redemptive path yeah. forward and that's what moves it beyond to me the cynicism yeah to to believe that there is no light is is cynicism you know to to but to be in the world with your eyes wide open and to risk being wrong, I, I think that that's actually profoundly a, a gracious way to live. And, and really it's a, it's a posture. We're going to talk about, you know, uh, culture of, um, or, you know, a, a framework of scarcity versus a framework of abundance. Framework of scarcity is to say, um, that there is no light and, um, or that there is only light, you know, the Thomas Kincaid 
approach to art. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it's the painter of light yeah. who painted these very, um, just really, you know, really, really bad works that, that are, I mean, it's, it's just fraudulent. It's not, there's nothing true about it. You know, it's, he wants to paint the world before the fall, which is to say worlds that none of us have ever seen or will ever see, which is to say he's painting, he's painting religious fantasy, which there's nothing further from Christianity than religious fantasy. Christianity is the most tactile, like what you're saying, it's the most blood and guts thing. Um, it is the, it's the story that makes sense to slaves. Yeah. Actually, like, How never mind. Is that? Totally. It's, it's, and, and slaves, I mean, you want to talk about it, people who are acquainted with sweat, blood, and tears. It's people who, who are in the field, people who have stripes in the back, people who um, are bound and who have no hope in this life. If a story makes sense to them, then we ought, you know, never mind. Ne How wild is it? How wild is it to think of it when you frame it that way, John, and we think of the revelation that came to the ancient Hebrew people who were slaves, who were constantly under threat of invasion, who were passed on as property from one empire to the next, and for them to still have the audacity to say, no, God's creation is good. What he made was good. In the midst of that, like, that's the difference between cynicism and true prophetic being yeah. a seer is to yes. be able to say that in the in this in the midst of that or you think about in American history the journey of African Americans in this country yeah. you know to to take the religion of the people that were abusing them and oppressing them the the, the stories that they heard from the slave masters as they were being poorly treated in the cotton fields and to take that story and to transform it in such a way that it produced hope. It produced that what I see is like the genuine effects of the gospel in them is astounding. And to be people that can somehow hold to those things, not to be Kincaid-like, right. paint this picture that uh, everything's rosy, everything's yeah. good, let's not acknowledge the darkness, and yet to not be overwhelmed in the other ditch by cynicism, despair, yeah. chaotic deconstruction. I'm wondering how hard it is as a songwriter who is a follower of Jesus, as an artist like yourself, John. Um, I don't want to sound cynical in saying this. I feel like it's a fair evaluation, but people can correct me. Uh, it doesn't seem like in Christian culture in America— that there's a lot of room for that sort of honesty and yet that hopefulness to happen for artists to tell their story, to tell the story of history that they see. How hard has it been for you to figure out, all right, where do I fit? You're singing these profound songs about the story that you believe is true, how you're trying to live into it, you're calling other people into it. And yet, I also don't see in you a, um, not that you couldn't do this, I'm sure you could, but you're also not like writing for, you know, the top 40 charts of Christian radio. You're also not necessarily writing for a space which is, um, you know, everyone's going to take your songs and sing them communally on a Sunday morning. Uh, and... Has it been really hard 
to go, all right, I still hold on. You, you call like what you do devotional music. And I'd love to hear you flesh that out a little bit more and to talk about how difficult it is for artists that feel like, whether it's just market forces or the current structure of Christian subculture, it feels really, it seems to me very difficult for an artist like yourself to keep doing, being faithful to what they see as their vocational calling in the world. Is it hard for you? It is very hard. Yeah, it is very hard. Um, mercifully, my wife is crystal clear on that for me, the times when I'm, when I'm not clear on it myself. Um, but, I mean, exactly, the market forces, it's just hard to, you know, to make a living doing something that isn't either the Christian radio thing or the uh, you know, congregational worship thing. Both of those things, which I have, I have dear friends who are very good yes, at that and do that very well mm -hmm. and do it with a pure heart, you know? Um, and to be honest, if I, if I could rinse, repeat, do that with success, I probably would. I like, honestly, I think it was God's, I think it was God's um, kindness in giving me a very uh, peculiar set of artistic sensibilities and lyrical sensibilities and um, spiritual leanings. And it's just, it's, it's really him kind of stopping me from going, because I was signed to a major label and, and we made a Christian radio play and it just didn't work. Hmm. Um, and we all tried to make it work. And um, now I'm so glad it didn't work, but I was, I was bummed. I thought I'd failed. I thought, Oh God, I thought you gave me this thing and you know, they opened these doors for me and you gave me the best team, the best label, the best producers, best musicians. And it, it just didn't work. Some things worked. Um, you know, the, the parts when I really brought my self to bear worked and that, you know, eventually carved out a path for me to do what I'm doing now. But, um, but it is still hard because, um, you know, for artists in the church, we, we often feel so exiled from the crowd. You know, we feel like everyone's having this experience here and I, I'm not like, hmm. why is that? You know, I, and, and we want to belong, even though sometimes we, we are afflicted with this sense of non-belonging or, or loneliness or something. Um, I, think, I think that is part and parcel with having an artistic spirit. Um, is sort of a, you are maybe mindful of what other people aren't mindful of, which is the fact that we are sojourners. There's something about our experience here that just isn't um, resonant. And, and so the dissonance we feel as artists we translate into, well, there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with, um, or there must be something with these people because they don't accept me or they don't recognize me. Um, so, so those dynamics are still present, you know, in me, though in an increasingly uh, smaller degree as I become, you know, a little bit more settled and just who I am and what I'm doing. Um, What's caused you to be more settled in that, you know, it, it, I, you know, you certainly have full permission. Don't let this conversation restrict you to going, hey, tomorrow you might wake up and go, I want to write songs for people to sing collectively in, in church. Yeah. But it, it seems like from my vantage point, you've really settled into yeah. a really important niche. It's important in my life. It's it's valuable to me, John. Um, what has helped you? Uh, obviously, maybe there's been the experience of, well, this doesn't seem like it's working, so... yeah. 
Um, but what, what's giving you the ability to go, hey, I, I actually, I f- I'm going to stick to this. I feel like what I have is a blessing to the world and I, I'm going to stick with it, even if it doesn't necessarily have, you know, K-Love, you know, top 40 yeah. commercial success. Um, I, it's for me, it's a, uh, it's just a point of, um, trust in God. I mean, it's as simple as that. I I could keep chasing, um, that other thing, but I I know that I'm meant to be making records like Keeper of Days. I mean, at at this, I, I, what's great is I actually have the privilege now of being on the other side of Keeper of Days and I can, I have songs that I made, that I wrote, that my wife played on, that from beginning to end was something that we just made um, mm. ourselves. That is is really like a, a testament. Um, like, okay, th- this is something I was, um, to the best of my ability, was faithful in. Like, yeah. And um, so, so now that I have that, I, it just feels like, well, why, why would I do anything else? You know? Um, and, and yeah, the devotional music resonates with me because it, it really, um, you know, just realizing that God created me with my idiosyncratic uh, sensibilities um, and, and accepting that. Sometimes it, it, it's easier to accept the abstract theological truths, but yeah, the degree yeah. to which they penetrate our lives and our actions is really, I mean, that, that's the stuff of faith. That's the stuff of, um, of being a simple Christian. And for me, being a simple Christian means um, almost risking failure in my idiosyncrasies because that is what I um, believe. Uh, that's why I'm here, you know? Yeah. I, and I'm not, not that I'm here for, I, one of the travesties about maybe the way the worship thing that we grew up in is it gives you a false sense that the epic is really the only domain of God's activity in the world. Um, we talked about this earlier. Um, but, you know, there's so many, like, God is really in the business of, of the frivolously mundane. And I feel like what I'm doing is frivolously mundane. Um, <laughs> It just, it feels like, why? Like, why do I get to do what I, you know, why do I, why is there somebody um, with my history, with, you know, why was I born now? Why was, or, you know, when I was born, why am I alive now? And I, I, I get to write these songs to God, get to be married to a woman who plays violin, and we get to kind of muddle through, uh, the process of making these albums and we get to watch our daughter. It just, I think it feels very frivolous to me. And it feels like, you know, I'm not, I'm not like William Wilberforce, you know, I'm not like, <laughs> you know, Bob Dylan, I'm not yeah. Bach. Like I, I don't, there's just something very, um, but there's also something very liberating about that and very um, almost like, okay, like if you think it's worth it to, you know, to arrange life in such a way that I can do this, then how foolish would it be for me to then, you know, say, well, I want something else. You know, I want what Chris Tomlin has. I yeah, want what, yeah. um, and so my clearer moments, that that just, it, it feels like very settled and settling to, to put my hand to the plow and um, 
in my insecure moments and in my flailing moments, I feel like, why couldn't you just give me one number one single? Just one gun. Like, I don't know. <laughs> so we don't have to worry about money. Like, I don't yeah, just have... pay the bills for a year here. Because like, yeah. um, you know, I hear what you're saying, John, is immense encouragement, not just to artists out there, but to anybody in any vocation, which seems like what they're doing is so minuscule. And it's really hard because I, I I think what you're communicating is a deeply true value of the kingdom of God. And we see it throughout the New Testament, whether we want to use the the language Paul uses that we all are in Christ's body and each of us play different roles. You know, one's a hand, one's a hand, one's a foot. Christ is the head, and and we we get to we get to stay in our lane and run our way, race with endurance. Well, yeah, uh, I hear that encouragement for artists, but I'm also like transposing that to use a musical term. I'm also transposing that as you're sharing it to thinking about people that like work with their hands. Um, they are laborers, yeah. and in our culture, there's this sort of cultural collision. If you're a follower of Jesus in America, there are notions of what success looks like. There are notions, cultural notions of what it means to be valuable that brush up against the what it means to be valued by Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And to do what you're doing, to have confidence and say, hey, this is the place that God's called me to, and I'm going to be faithful and fruitful. And to focus just on faithfulness and fruitfulness and what you do. It's so much better. There's so many forces, right? You can't control why that record that you did before didn't land versus other ones landing is a mystery. Totally. There's like so much outside of our our sphere of control, and we spend so much time being anxious about right. somehow like can we contort ourselves in particular ways to get those outcomes, and that that really seems like a spirit of the age that we are yeah. brushing up against. Absolutely, man. What are some of the other values when you, um, I think all songwriters, artists, filmmakers, I mean, even skilled laborers, you know, you're, you're a yeah. carpenter yeah, working with your hands. There are values that we try to embed within. We don't even have to try like those values, whatever our values are, are expressed in what we make and do in the world. In fact, those are our truest yeah. values is what actually comes to bear in the fruits yeah. of our life. Yeah. seems to me that beauty is one of your biggest personal values, but yeah. you can correct me if I'm wrong. Is that the case? Is, is beauty one of them? What are some other values that you really go, hey, I, I, I'm really making conscious effort to somehow embed these in the work that I produce? Um, no, I hate beauty. <laughs> with the worst no definitely definitely beauty um i mean honestly beauty truth and goodness i mean yeah is that like can't go wrong with that aquinas aquinas says beauty is goodness made perceptible to the senses which to me is i mean that is just just end the conversation there that, that's really all i need to know like i yeah, the, the experience of beauty is really an experience of grace. It's an experience of, um, it, it's decentering by its nature. So for, for someone just to say, oh my goodness, that's so beautiful, whatever it is, work of art, a sunset, a child, 
in in the moment the, the, the visceral experience of beauty is one of uh, non-self-centeredness because I'm attending to something outside of me and I'm acknowledging that it has value outside. It's like, wow, even just to say wow is is to be pulled out of yourself, which should be a lesson, you know. It's like times we spend thinking about ourselves, most depressing minutes of the day, you know. Mm-hmm. But um so so that is that is a value. And I think I think truth telling is also a value, not um over and against uh, doctrine teaching. Yeah. So, you know, doctrine teaching is mm-hmm. truth telling. I think of John 9, even uh, Jesus heals a man born blind, and the Pharisees have him in. Hey, what happened to you? Well, you know, a guy healed me. And well, who do you think this guy is? Well, he must, I don't know who he is, but he must be a prophet. And they're like, no, we don't want to hear that. You know, so they, they come back and they ask him, um, Tell us again the story. He's like, well, I already told you the story. Uh, he healed me. And, and they say, give glory to God. Don't give glory to him. This man's a sinner. And what, what the blind man says is, I uh, hope I'm not butchering this, but I, I'm, what the blind man says is, um, I, I don't know whether or not he is a sinner, but I do know that I was blind and now that I see. And now I see. Hmm. You know, that's not doctrine. That is... One man's experience of Christ uh, in, in a very vulnerable in, in a in an environment in which he has no power and and is being ultimately vulnerable, just being true about his experience, and he gets he gets a lot of real estate in the Gospels. He gets a whole chapter, you know. Like there's something important about this. I think to us and for me as an artist, I feel less. Um, you know, my dad's a my dad's a preacher, and he's a wonderful preacher, and he's a gifted preacher, and and teacher, and theologian. Really, he's a thinker. Um, I'm I'm. I would say you you are too, Paul. Like I love your stuff. I love what you're doing here. You have a gift of just appreciate that speaking plainly, and it makes sense and it resonates. Um, I I think my I think my role is a little bit different. My role is is uh, to the degree that. Um, Teaching is also truth-telling. I think it's valuable. I think what you do is truth-telling. As it relates to my art, truth-telling is um, I have a heart full of questions. What is the meaning of Christian in this American life? Mm. That's truth-telling. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, truth-telling is where are you hiding, Lord? Um, you, you are the Adam in my soul's garden. It's acknowledging the, the felt experience through the poetic um, in, in a way that feels true in my most quiet, most secret hidden moments feels true to my lived experience of prayer. Um, that to me is truth telling. And so I value that in my work, anything that feels fraudulent and I, I just, I'll change it. You know, it just feels like, Oh, that's me. And, um, you know, not being a part of a label, not being a part of a, maybe of a larger evangelical church has helped me with the truth telling. Cause sometimes those environments can, um, by uh, just by being the environments they are and pull you into um, a a culture of Christianity rather than kind of a a spirit of truthfulness that is born Mm -hmm. out of prayer. Um, Just because I think we're, you know, we're wired to pick up on cultural things. And the the quirky thing about Christian cultures is that they kind of like the culture, you know, it's something can be picked up. You see kids, 
you know, seven years old doing the same worship motions as their parents. Well, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, well, culture works. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, spiritually, this is why I think, you know, the monastics went into the desert because they were recognizing that, oh man, uh, Rome is Christian now. You know, Constantine has made Christianity the official religion. So they flee to the desert because of the culture. You know, they flee, they were trying to, and I think there was some sanity in that. And um, holiness, you know, I, in my experience, holiness is not often cultural. Like holiness is rarely cultural. Holiness is always kind of an idiosyncratic purity born, born in prayer. So for me, trying to bring that, um, you know, prayer, I guess, would be a value uh, to whatever degree that holy, holiness can seep out. I don't think one needs to be, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a grace that you, I don't think holiness is necessary for making great work. Um, a lot of scoundrels make a lot of great work. Um, and uh, it's a good thing, so otherwise there would be no great work. But uh, truth-telling, um, I think if, if there's one piece of intentionality, though, I honestly, uh, the, the idea that there's a mastermind behind great works of art that is like um, maneuvering and manipulating people's attention, I, I'm, I, I'm not really, I don't believe in that kind of approach. My approach is a lot more um, uh, the, the best songs I just kind of allow myself to get into a space and then the abilities that I've uh, maybe acquired or the skills that I've practiced then, then are just they kind of get swept away in this thing um, uh, not, not that I'm not coming back and repeatedly editing and not that there's not a whole lot of discipline that goes into it but it's but it really it's it's like um, the any the white knuckle grip on the thing is is just not just not really how it works mm. for me. I, I really don't think for the for good poets for good writers. I don't think it's a it's a white knuckling thing. Yeah, um, it does seem like though there in all communication there is though you're not trying to manipulate. Right. particular responses i'm sure in your mind as an artist as a songwriter any communication i mean i think yeah you mentioned the difference between you and your father is yeah. all that difference is is a difference in the symbols in that mode, are giving yeah. us you know so your dad may use you know rhetoric and i don't mean that in the negative way he exactly. yeah exactly. you know um he may use doctrine he, yes. the, the written word and the spoken word and here you are though using obviously the spoken word and lyric, but it isn't just that. It's it's a different symbol. Symbols are always doorways to help us yeah. see transcendent ideas and values. So yeah. you just have a, there's different modes of communication that's yeah. happening here. So even in that communication, it does seem like we communicate in hopes of at least some sort of response. Maybe, maybe yeah, yeah. again, that might sound manipulative. I, I don't intend it. No, to no, be. no, no. Yeah, and yeah, maybe I overstated the the. I I, I simply mean I, I definitely I hope for certain things and I I have certain preferences, but um, you know, it, when it when a craftsman um builds something like i mean like a table or a desk what they're using just certain 
they're they're manipulating in, mm-hmm. in I guess in a good way physics, right? Yes, yes, yeah. And they're using the properties of wood to create something that is then used for other things. And I think with for me, the song there's just certain properties to a song that sort of like um, you know there's certain things that you do that that work that don't work, and you kind of learn what those things are, and then. But there's something that makes like, you know, an experience of, of good art, there's like a deeper magic. You know, C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia, it's like, well, why did Aslan get raised? Well, there's a deeper magic that you didn't know anything about. Yeah. I think art plays in that. And again, Definitely. we do our very best. Like I practice piano. You know, I watch an obnoxious amount of tutorial videos on how to make tracks sound good like <laughs> I, it's just like it's, it's very much a craft for me i i read i love poetry I, i'm trying to understand how lyrics work um yeah but but it's less like i want paul to feel something and more like i'm just trying to write a great song mm-hmm. i'm trying to be truthful to my experience um you know if, if there was a thing that i was intentional about at least my last record it was it was, I, I wanted to preserve some sense of quiet versus a sense of um, like blow it up raucousness or something. Yeah. Um, I you, think that you didn't that, have any quarter note to eight note builds on the crash symbol leading well, into, yeah, in fact, some massive yeah, chorus. No, no crowded eights. You know, yeah. I, I specifically like, you know, with the electric, I had a, I had a buddy play on a couple songs and he's like, I don't want any dotted eights. Like, <laughs> Just out of like, just to prove yeah. we can do, you know, other things. And, and it can still feel ethereal without yeah. having to sound like the edge. Totally, totally. Yeah. And really trying to trying to recover, well, what is behind the dotted eight? And why is the epic mode of religious experience that we've been bathed in the last, I would say since Billy Graham, just the, basically the feeling of what, it, you know, uh, the feeling you get at a stadium that feeling that we're trying to rinse, repeat, and copy and paste. What is it about that? That there's something valuable to it. I don't think we'd be recycling it. Um, I'm trying to trying to get that, trying to get like the deeper magic without, you know, without the stadium, without the mm. I love miles of reverb. I've got expensive reverb pedal sitting on the desk. It's like, you know, I, I get it, I get yeah, it, but yeah, it's like, yeah. what, what is it? Like um well, there's, so the, there's a problem with that constant routine of uh, well even just from neuroscience you know the the latest um the latest science about the function of our brain it used to be that people thought the right and left hemisphere was that the right hemisphere is your math side i'm sorry the right hemisphere is like your art and creativity side side. yep and the left hemisphere is your math side but the more recent um research is really good brain uh, book I, gosh, and I'm drawing a blank on the author's names. I, I can be so terrible with names. It's called The Executive Brain. Mm-hmm. And um, in that book, the author discusses how actually the, the latest research is that what's more likely, the two hemispheres work that in this way that the right hemisphere deals with novelty. That's the, that's the hemisphere that is processing and experiencing the novel. And the left hemisphere is what is predominantly used for the routines that we have. So in that way, like, it's not so much art or music comes from our right hemisphere. It's that sometimes that hemisphere gets activated when we're experiencing something that's novel versus experiencing something that's routine. And, and to me, there's, a, there's this deep sense in which repentance, a new way of seeing 
which is at the core of Jesus' message, right? The, 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 the essence of Jesus' message is repent, metanoia, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So it requires an openness to novelty, which can be, it can freak people out, especially with conservative predispositions, because they hear an openness to novelty and they think new ideas, progressive. And that's not necessarily the same thing. But without that openness to novelty, if we just have the routine, there's no room for repentance. So when I heard your—the first time I heard your your music, John, my wife got home from work one day. She had—she said, hey, 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 you got to come here. Just get away from all the kids. We don't have a bunch of room in our house right now, so our way place away from the kids is our bedroom. So this isn't like—this isn't going to get weird or creepy. She <laughs> She asked me, come here, you got to come to our room. She's like, just lie down right here and just listen to this song, okay? And so she puts on your your Teach Us That One song from uh, your last record. And I just laid there and cried. I, I, I wept through it. It was like the transcendence of God and the imminence of God collided with me in that moment and I think if you would have filled it with like, we're going to do a quarter note build to the eighth note build, crescendo on the cymbals, bring in the dotted eighth, I couldn't have experienced that transcendence of God mm. in the same way because it would have been so routine. There was something about the composition in and of itself, John, that opened me up to wonder. I could feel there was something different that clicked that thing in my brain, which is like, this is novel. And yet embedded in that song wasn't like, well, here's something brand new. Yeah. It's like, here's wisdom. And I'm sharing it with you in a way that's going to catch your attention. So when you, when you have that movement in that song, you move like, you know, the finger picking is amazing. I, I've never been able to finger pick quite, quite like that. I always, you know, I always just do the one or two fingers and people that really properly finger pick have got to use, you know, the, the proper classical. You move, you move from that into, you know, this movement and I, it's, there's probably some pads in there, but you, you jump into this sonic landscape of you singing, holding out a note falsetto there's some pads and strings come in. And that, that for me was like, that took me somewhere, mm. some, some place in a way that I have become now 15 years ago, the stadium rock worship took me someplace. Mm. And I think it still has value, but it doesn't anymore because it's become so routine. It's so safe. It doesn't feel like a risk of faith. And when I heard that song, John, I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, and um, so even like, what's the story behind what goes into like that particular song? Mm -hmm. You know, I know you're not necessarily thinking, well, when I get to the final product of this song that I want to share with other people, that's the exact experience I have in mind. But it yeah. has to be one that I hope you would go and be like, okay, well, then that song was a success. Like what yeah. I've given in the world was a success hearing that it, it produced that experience in you. So can you yeah. even take me through, like, just as one example, that song, there's so yeah. many great songs on the record. I mean, we're using one in our Good Friday service coming up cool. um, for during a time of lament, um, you know, and 
but I'd love to hear just even as a case study, like what goes into that kind of song? Is that the sort of experience that you have in mind as you're composing it? Yeah. Um, walk, uh, let us into your soul here, John. <laughs> totally, man. No, that, that's so sweet, Paul. Thank you for, I mean, that is, that is what I hope. I hope people, um, I hope that people experience the beauty of my work. I mean, really, that is, that is the hope. So in that sense, um, I, I, that song took me nine years to write. So yeah, it's I, an old they line, were, huh? It's, it's an it aged wine. That song that was full band. And um, it just didn't feel right. I mean, I, I really don't know how else to explain it. it. Just every iteration of it just kept, you know, I, I, I think there's 12, 13 verses. I just kept kept going on lyrics. And and then I just kept taking away, you know, it was the band and then no, not the band. Then it was on the steel string, no, not the steel string. Then it was a little slower on the piano. Um, and the lyrics kept evolving too. And I, I wasn't sure where it was going until it was just, um, I think it took me nine years to, to get it right. It just, you know, so I you were feeling it than rationally deducing. If I use this particular arrangement, I know I can get this sort of result. It's definitely. in the moment of you playing it, recording it, listening back. It's more of a, intu- it's more of an intuition than it intuition. is a yeah. rational process. deduction. Yeah, mm. that, definitely. It's it's all intuition for me. It's only um, I uh, I really believe that the intuition feeds the other side, but it's never like my my music theory teacher. I remember my in, in my freshman year of college said, "I'm going to teach you a lot of things. I'm going to teach you how to change keys. I'm going to teach you different uh, about all kinds of music, and you're going to leave here being able to do a lot." But the moment you basically take something that you learn and then try to apply that immediately, you are going to make like bad music. That is bad music. It just sounds like you just sound derivative. Um, it's like you're all coming into music school because you are given a bucket. And this wasn't a Christian school. This was just a, at a community college in my town. Mm-hmm. You're all given a bucket. And out of that bucket, you draw inspiration. Out of that bucket, you draw your first bad song. Out of that bucket, maybe you draw something you're proud of. Out of that bucket, a song for your girlfriend. Um, maybe you're feeling something in the middle of the night and you pick up your guitar and you're pulling out of that bucket. It's like basically what I'm giving you is a different bucket. Now this bucket is new chords, new ways to compose, ways to orchestrate, you know, an, an orchestra, ways to uh, write music so that it feels um, modal versus diatonic. And he's like, I, I just want you to keep filling that, that bucket and don't worry about it. I always and only ever pull out of this bucket. One day, without you noticing it, you're going to pull something out of this bucket that you put into this bucket and you're not going to be aware of it. You're just going to reach for it and it's going to be there and it's going to be the most natural thing in the world. And, um, and that's really my experience. I mean, citizens, for instance, is a folk song in five, four, I didn't intend it to be five, four, but when I was counting it out, you know, it, Oh, that, this is a song in five, four. Cause that's kind of what, and I didn't, you know, again, I didn't try for that. So it really was an intuition with Teach Us That One Song. It just kept feeling like it wasn't right. And lyrically, it kept feeling like I kept tying it up in a neat bow at the end. Mm. And um, ending with, Christ, my heart's beloved one, are you proud of who I've become? Ugh. Ultimately was, was like, this is what I've been trying to say for nine years. Like being a man in his mid-30s, yeah. I've tried so hard 
to like be successful, you know, to please my wife, to please my parents, to be a good for it. Like I just tried really hard. I think, I think, uh, we all try hard and I, in my mind, I'm like, God, are you like, are you proud of me? Like, I've really like, I've, I'm trying here. <laughs> like, and, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to ask that question that directly in my, you know, mid twenties when I started the song. Um, so. But that was I the think- phrase. That was the line for me. That was, and yeah. That, and that's, and that you've wrestled with it for so long, like, like, you know, like an aged wine, it's <laughs> just better. It, it, it's not the cheap stuff. You're not just making grape juice. Uh, that was, that was something. And there's an intoxication, you know, that, that comes with that, the euphoria. There's a otherness that you, it takes you out of yourself. Like you're, you're like you've said with beauty. And there was that line, and, and there's a few people that are writing in, I, I don't want to put any specific genre in it, I, and I, I struggle to find good language to describe people like yourself who are writing songs that pull from the Christian story. They're clearly, you know, probably you have to have some contextual experience with the Christian story and Christian community to maybe most fully appreciate it. So yeah. I, I don't want to call it Christian music or, you know, music in the faith space, but there's, there, there's something. And there's only a few out there, at least in the sorts of music that I, I find to aesthetically be a point of connection for me. It's guys like you, um, my friend, Andy Squires, mm-hmm. you know, a guy like John Mark McMillan, another dear friend. And, and that line did what I've told each of those guys before, you know, and I just told Andy this with his last record. I said, hey, I don't, I don't know how you do this, but there can be things that I've been wrestling with for years mm-hmm. with God. And in one line, you've summed it up. Mm-hmm. Like you've given voice to a prayer. And that's what it was for me. That, that song, John, was that when that line in particular was like, man, I feel that same way too. Like I'm a guy that's in my approaching my late thirties now, married with a few kids. I've done ministry my entire adult life. It's not the most lucrative gig in the world. You're going, man, could I have done things differently? All this work. I'm not trying to make a name for myself. I just want to be faithful. And in the end, I do need to hear beyond, and I get it theologically. I get it doctrinally. I get it that I have God's approval and his attention. I get it as a proposition, but at that deep participatory level, it is something that in my deepest moments of anguish with God, I go, God, I hope I really do. And to give voice to that is something really, really special. It, it reminded me of another transformative moment. We were talking before the podcast about this, John. It reminded me of another transformative moment, and it was back around 2011, transformative moment for me with art in particular. And at that point, I was still kind of like traveling around the country doing charismatic prophetic conferences and a lot of really good experiences there. Uh, But uh, I did not have a grid for the God revealed in Jesus who becomes incarnate as a Jewish man, as a carpenter, had smelly feet from walking all day in the dirt, who was human, who 
needed Mary to change his diapers, the mm-hmm. mundane God. Um, I didn't have any space for that. Everything for me was about that bigness, that the yeah. stadium, the event, and that was where I felt the presence of God almost exclusively until I had this profound sense of brokenness as I'm watching Terrence Malick's film Tree of Life. And like your song, it wasn't so much that I was like rationally deducing, oh, this is what I need. These are the propositions about God that I've been missing. But I watched that film and I just, I just bawled my eyes out again. I'm not much of a crier. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm telling you a couple of experiences that aren't normative. I bawled my eyes out because that film helped me see this huge gaping hole in my theology that was leading to this gaping hole in the real existential life I was living. And right. I, that film elicited in me this sense that the mundane was filled with moments of transcendence and holiness Ugh. and beauty and wonder with my wife, with my kids, and I was missing it. It was right in front of me. It had been in front of me for years, and I had been chasing this ministry thing that I thought that's where God was at. And I, I just, I wept, man. And that thing actually did produce a longer theological journey for me. Mm. I uh, bring that up because like Terrence Malick, like your music, um, this is the sort of art that helps me see, experience mm. God as these things we hold to as Christian, transcendent and imminent, that he's the God above and beyond all creation, yet he's the God that's crucified and suffered like we're going to celebrate um, this week. Um, you've been actually composing music for Terrence Malick. Is that true? I mean, that was actually something yeah. Andy told me. I was like, really? That's wild. How does yeah. that happen? What have been maybe the ways in which his films have connected with you? You got to yeah. tell me about that. Cause that to me is like, that's like the dream. Right there. <laughs> the dream yeah. situation. Yeah. It's, it's been such a wild, wild journey. So, I mean, it's my, uh, one of my dearest friends in all the world started working with him and, uh, through a bunch of, you know, a few really kind of, I, I would say, uh, cool, just opportunities that popped up. I started working with him too. Um, our main thing was we were, you know, part of a group of composers for uh, a hidden life that composed the music. My wife's a violinist, a very gifted violinist. And we recorded hours and hours of music for that movie. And, um, and truly, it, it, uh, it's mainly because of my wife. I mean, her playing is so beautiful, and uh, he really took to her playing. Um, and, yeah, that, the biggest takeaway from that experience was just how um, iterative the process was. So there was very little, uh, there was just a lot of, okay, do it again, now do it again this way, do it again this way, do it again this way, do it again that way. There's no, there's no. Like, and who's that coming from? Like, who are those instructions coming from? From from Malik. From uh-huh. um, so just trying to find the right thing. And uh, yeah. Are you doing this with scenes that you're you're able to watch, or is he just giving you like, here's what's going on, here's the script? Yeah, sometimes scenes. Sometimes it's just here's a uh, piece that I want you to take um, these maybe a bunch of measures and turn that into maybe three minutes of music that we can give the editors and see 
So it was, I, our job was mainly doing orchestral, what we called shadows, we called shadows. So big, larger orchestral pieces that were reduced down to like, sometimes one voice, sometimes just a single violin, sometimes three voices. So, so just very minimal and um, seeing, you know, seeing what we could do with those, with those pieces. And it was amazing. And we still have some music that we going to do something with at some point. Um, a lot of music came from that. Uh, and that's, that's what we're doing on this next film too. So that was for a hidden life and did that remotely from Chicago for a couple of years. And then we moved down to Austin, Texas to work on uh, way of the wind, just the current, the current film. Is, uh, is film something for you that produces similar effects in you, uh, oh, music? Totally. Oh my gosh. Tree, I mean, tree of life was a tremendously outrageously impactful movie for me too. Um, and, uh, so it, it just is an amazing, very particular, uh, pointed kindness to me that, that God has let us work on the movie and a couple movies. Um, and again, it's, it's, we're working with a group of composers and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very iterative, you know, it's, there's really, it sounds more glamorous than it is really making movies, but it's, um, it's, it's tremendously helpful for me just in my process to see how somebody else does it and how a group of people do it. And, um, to be making these kinds of, you know, I, I would like to think I have the same goals artistically in yeah. terms of what I hope like yeah, I feel that way. Hope to be happening. It's uh letting stillness have its way, you know, letting uh letting the quiet um have its way. And um, has that been something you ever talked with him about? Have you guys had communication outside of just, hey, here's you know the the scene and you know the business side of or the, of the work. Yeah. Have you had opportunities to to discuss, you know, the the values that you maybe share? Um, not, not directly, but it, it's always, um, it's always in process of working on, you know, working on a scene or working on a movie that, that those, those things kind of seep out, you know, there, yeah. there's really, there's really just one mode, which is just, how do we, how do we fix this, the problems that we're, you know, it's really, it's really just about fixing the problem, like problems being, it's not working. Why isn't it working? Well, let's try this to make it work. And Maybe if we try this, it'll work because for these reasons, because, yeah, uh, yeah. so it's, yeah, it's, it's less kind of direct and, um, and yeah, it's, it's just very iterative. I mean, that, that was probably, that's kind of been the biggest takeaway is how, how much experiment, uh, how many blind alleys, you, you know, willing to go down and how many, and how long they take to make movies. I mean, it's several years and it's like, Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad it, you know, and some people aren't as glad, um, but he, you know, it's just as somebody who really, I need time. I'm just a little bit of a slow bird with, um, with making my stuff. So it, mm. that piece has been really, really, really helpful and encouraging. Do you have any things that you're, you're working on? I mean, outside of composing for that film that you yeah. are planning on sharing anytime that people can be looking forward to? Totally, man. I'm working on another record. So awesome. I, uh, I've got, I'm probably 90% done with the writing. And I took a, a leak when my friend left town about a month ago and I, I moved into his apartment and brought in all my recording gear and tracked, tracked a lot of it. 
Um, so I'm, I'm actually closer than I thought I was. I, I might have like another record pretty soon. Um, That's great. And it's just been, it's been a collection of songs built in for the last year. Um, on my mornings. So mm, yeah, that's great. I might be doing some, um, releasing of singles here and there just cause, uh, I just kind of felt like maybe this is a season for that for me. Um, I spent really almost four years in the hole with keeper of days without releasing anything. And I think this next one, I might, um, without compromising, you know, what I think is, just what you know what the album should be if you're releasing songs here and there is it's kind of mm-hmm. like a uh, just really an exercise even in releasing because that that can be, that can be too. <laughs> yeah i've really loved the video stuff that you oh, guys do for- it's it's shot really well um okay. it's it's beautiful to look at and i don't just mean that like you you and your wife are pleasant people to look at but the the framing it's it's very um aesthetically tasteful as well so there's plenty of that out there for those of you that are listening and maybe you're just becoming familiar via this conversation with john's stuff there's so much there's so much out there i have to um as we wrap up i promised my wife i'd tell you this this story too as well john because she did i forgot to mention this earlier she did that thing with me you know showing me that teach us the one song but she didn't just do it with me she was telling she just told me this last night that not long after that she went on a walk with her childhood friend and there's this place um just outside the twin cities called Stillwater. it's right on the border of minnesota and wisconsin and uh, the saint croix river runs through it. it's a you know cute old town that you'd see in like Hallmark movies and uh, plenty of walking trails. And they were on their walk and she, she said, Hey, you know, Molly, you've got to, you've got to lay down right here in the grass and just listen to this song. And it produced the, the same effect in her as well. So I'm, I'm looking forward to more of those songs coming from you, John. And um, I'm, I'm really thankful for your work and the, the blessing it's been in my own family. And I hope that when this record next record gets done that maybe we would have an opportunity to to talk through maybe some of the particulars of what went in to that record and you could maybe come back on and we can navigate um some of the things that you're you were trying to capture in those songs that'd be awesome man i love that great awesome john i appreciate the time together yeah likewise dude thank you thank you for having me let's do your work man this is awesome i'm a fan i'm a listener Mm. thank you for yeah thanks for having me wow thanks john that really means a lot to me well, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with John Guerra. If you have thoughts, opinions, objections, follow-up questions, the best place to voice those is in our Deep Talks Patreon forum, where you can connect with me and listeners from across the country in a forum that happens for each episode of this podcast. Every episode, we have a discussion forum where people can connect and share their thoughts, their feedback. They can share questions, objections, and it's a really healthy place for dialogue. It's a much better avenue for having this sort of discussion than Facebook or Twitter, which can, for whatever reason, seem to descend into political arguments and all sorts of other things. That doesn't happen in our discussion forums on Patreon. The people that are contributing over there are people that, like you, probably are really tired of the culture war polemics, so none of that happens over there. There's really good engagement, good exchange of ideas. I've been really, really happy with the quality of conversation that happens over on those discussion forums. So check that out if that's something you're interested in. 
We just actually hit the one-third mark of our benchmark, our, our initial first-tier benchmark of getting 300 patrons. We just crossed over the 100 Patreon, the 100 patron mark on Patreon just this past week. So thank you all for your support. Once we get to 300 patrons, I'll be able to sustain weekly ad-free episodes as well as launch into a bunch of other video ideas that I have, some of which we've done a little bit of on my YouTube channel, doing some video essays. Uh, we do occasionally, I don't get to it every episode, but try to post uh, clips from conversations as well. So thanks for your support. Help me get to that first tier of 300 supporters on Patreon to support weekly ad-free episodes. Finally, one other way that you can support this podcast is just by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It is still the number one place people are going to to download and subscribe to podcasts. So by leaving a review over there and a ranking or a rating, I should say, you will improve the likelihood that someone else might discover this podcast as well. So if you think it's worth discovering, that's one way that you can help. As always, you can reach out to me in the Patreon discussion forum and send me a message on Patreon. If you're not ready to commit on Patreon, you can also reach out to me on Twitter or on Instagram as well. I'll leave a link in the description for my Twitter page of page. Is that what you call it? My Twitter feed? <laughs> oh gosh, I sound really old right now. You can find me on Twitter in the link provided as well. Make sure to check out and support John Guerra's music. Hopefully there will be some tours in the future. I know he said he's working on a new record. Go out and find ways that you can support John as well as a singer-songwriter. Extra special thanks to all those in the Theology 201 level group or higher on Patreon. People like Clint, Jesse, Anders, BJ, Carolyn, Carolyn Ruth, Eli, Hannah, Dr. Jim, John Michael, Johnny, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke H, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael P, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen Myers, Taylor S, Tim K. Thank you all for your generous support. I just can't do this without you all. I look forward to talking to many of you in this month's Patreon group Zoom hangout call. That last one last month was such a blast together. I can't wait to do it again this month. Well, all of you, thank you again for listening. Reach out with your questions, concerns, objections, whatever you want. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.